The church model that emerged in the Christendom age is the church model that we primarily practice today. Building-centred, priest-led, stage-focused, passive attendance. So um, a major problem is a, is a model of a church that emerged in Christendom. We're not in Christendom anymore, and the way we do church just doesn't make sense to a lot of people in our culture. Well, kia ora, and welcome to the Redemptive Family Podcast, where we explore simple relational ways of being church that really bring the, the why, the why we do church, back into the forefront of where it really belongs. Well, this series is called Help My Church is Shrinking. This is episode one out of five, and you may be thinking those exact words. Maybe you've thought them, maybe you've said them, and if you're thinking that, you've come to the right place. And we want to, over the next five weeks, give you hope that if your church is declining, it's not necessarily the end. You know, there is hope to see you become a thriving church again. Well, hi, my name is Steve Hooper. I am part of Family Life, uh, which is uh, a ministry of uh, a tandem with Love Your Neighbour. You're going to be meeting the team there. And in studio with me today uh, is Howard Webb. Hi, Howard. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. Now, Howard um, is also the author of a book. Now, I knew Howard before he was famous, before he wrote the book. Uh, but he has written a book, which we're going to be talking about, but uh, which really distills the the wisdom and experience that that he and his wife Lynette and also Bruce Edmonds of the Love Your Neighbor team um, have put into a book that really helps churches to thrive, not just survive. So we're going to be hearing a little bit more about that. And I believe you also planted a church, what, seven years ago? Is that right? That's right, yes. Church at 126 and Point Chev. Fantastic. And I guess we're going to be hearing more about that as well. But today, our special guest in studio is Paul Milson. So welcome, Paul. Kia ora. Kia ora, good to have you here. And now I believe Paul is from uh, Nelson, a little town in the South Island, married to Melanie. Uh, written in your bio, you have uh, three, uh, you think you said uh, mostly adult boys. Now yep. I understand, uh, you know, teenagers, you know, sometimes they're adults, sometimes they're not. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, a double meaning. Uh, so <laughs> to, uh, one of my boys is uh, 16 and, and still at high school, and the older two are 19 and 21. Uh, and they are young men. Sometimes. <laughs> yes. Oh, totally understand. They're trying to figure out who they are, and yeah, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. That's great. Uh, well, uh, Paul has been involved in various leadership roles in churches and NGOs over the past two decades. He is um, currently, and surprisingly, I hear you say, the vicar of Bright Brightwater. Is that right? Correct. Brightwater. Yes. Yeah. Surprisingly? I've been in the role for three and a half years, but if you'd asked me five years ago that... Um, uh, no, if you'd told me I was going to be an Anglican vicar, I would have laughed. Uh, that was not not <laughs> yeah. on my um, agenda at all. But uh, God has me where He wants me, and I'm very happy to be where I am. Fantastic. I understand you also play a bit of uh, footy, uh, football still with, um, and you said with some dad bod mates. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm 52, and there's a few of us uh, playing masters in the local football club. Well, when, when we say playing football, it's really a, an attempt to play football. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. football does actually accidentally occur. Um, <laughs> my wife, my wife came along and watched a few weeks ago, and uh, she just laughed because she said it, it just it looks like soccer, but everything's in slow motion, uh, <laughs> and that there are legs moving, but nobody's yeah. actually really moving anywhere. Yeah, do, do you win any games? Next question. Okay, yeah. <laughs> moving right along. Yeah. Okay, uh, Howard, now, obviously you know Paul. Explain the connection. How did you guys come together? Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure exactly when it was, Paul, but just a couple of years ago, perhaps, um, 
Paul got in touch with us about our Redemptor Family Church series, and uh, we went down to Nelson, and uh, they kind of did the six-week thing, and then we did the church-wide conversation at the end, and uh, we had a great time there, and, and we just, you know, loved Paul's church. And Paul and I just realized, I think, that we were just really clicked too. And uh, every time we get talking about about the, the, the stuff, we just, uh, you know, spur each other on. We can get a bit carried away. Spit can fly. <laughs> um, time flies. Yeah. And so we just had to have Paul on the show because, um, yeah, we're on the same page. We mm. speak the same language. And it's always better hearing it from someone other than me. So. Cool. Great. And you both got the impressive beards going on for those that are watching uh, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, well done. No, that's an impressive beard. (laughs) Nice try, Howie. I like yours too. (laughs) So the title of this episode is It's Not Your Fault, The Real Reason That Church Is Declining. Now, Howard, do you want to frame that uh, for the conversation for us? Yes, Steve, sure. So the reality is there are many churches closing every year around Mm. the country. you know, once upon a time, they were they held a, a significant place in the community. Um, they had a big Sunday school going, or they had a a vicar or a pastor with the common touch, and people loved to come. Mm. Um, there might be a significant graveyard out back, <laughs> yeah. um, but the reality is, um, they've got old and small, and they're finding it hard to kind of pay the pay the bills. Mm. And some of them are just saying, all right, we give up, we have to quit. And, uh, and those churches close down. And often those buildings get, get sold and the space they held in the community just disappears. And that's kind of sad. So, but it's a reality. And there may be plenty of people listening right now who fear that their church is also on the slippery slope. Mm. Um, a short while ago, maybe when I say a short while ago, maybe two or three Four years ago, they were a hundred strong. They're kind of down to thirty, and they're feeling pretty glum and pretty grim mm. about it. And uh, and everyone on the show um, over the next six weeks all knows what it's like to be part of a declining church and that kind of grim sense of "Oh my gosh, mm. where's this going going to go?" Yeah. But, Everyone on the show has also knows what it's like to be a group of 30 people, but with a sense of hope and a sense of excitement and a, a sense of passion about the future. And so if you're the, the struggling 30 and you want to kind of turn yourself around, we're kind of hoping to give you some of the ingredients, some of the, some of the guts of how things could be different. Mm. And so we're just really looking forward to doing that. What we're going to be talking about is not starting from scratch. We're talking about remodeling. Yeah. And remodeling means that you, you accept there's lots of good stuff here. There's some good walls. There's some good foundations. There's some good floor. But perhaps the church that was shaped for a different era needs to be remodeled uh, in order to be fit for purpose in the modern age. Mm. Um, not that you have to become a modern church because we're going to be talking about that, but but we've got to realize what it is we're about and we've got to make our church fit for purpose. And so we're talking about remodeling, uh, which is really quite different from bowling the whole place. Mm. And uh, and that's why we're excited to have Paul on the show because, you know, Paul's our poster child really <laughs> yeah, of, of basically taking a small place and, and giving it hope. 
So yeah, absolutely. I think the the key that you've talked about in there is hope. So for these churches that are feeling like, gosh, is there any hope for us? Yes, there is. So maybe Paul, you've had some experience in this in your own church. Tell us a little bit about your context and the journey that your church has been on. Sure. So um, I've been uh, at uh, well, I work in a little Anglican church in a in a small town called Brightwater. It's population two thousand. It's about um, twenty five minutes drive south of Nelson. Mm. Been in that context for three and a half years um, and uh, really got invited into that context to work into it because it was exactly the type of uh, church that Howard just described, where in a, in a previous version of itself it had been uh, thriving, there'd been a lot of energy there, there'd been young families, but uh, but in more recent years that had declined and uh, was you know, essentially a church of um, 30 to 40 at two different congregations, older older congregation. Um, and so uh, I guess the invitation was, Paul, come into this space and uh, we know we're in a bad place and see what uh, you can do and seek God's guidance and, and try a few things. So, Paul, I know you like to tell churches uh that are shrinking. It's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't you just you know expand on that message for us a little bit? I'm going to I'm going to start talking about or we'll start off by talking about the, what I think are the four things that all churches are called to do, and that's to glorify God, which is prayer, worship, telling everybody that you know Jesus is good, um, prayer and worship, glorify God, Christian community, which is loving one another, making disciples who make disciples, and mission, and mission essentially that summary statement of showing the love of Jesus uh, in deed, but also proclaiming um, the good news of Jesus in, in word. Um, and so no matter what church you are, no matter where you are in history, no matter where you are geographically or culturally, every church is called to do those four things, glorify God, Christian community, make disciples, and mission. Um, and so and I, what I want to do now is do 2,000 years of church history in hopefully two or three minutes or, hey, ready, or, or less. Go. Okay, so <laughs> in the beginning. Uh, so Jesus <laughs> Jesus creates the church and sends them out. And, and in the first 300 years of church history, essentially the church was um, – they met in homes primarily. Uh, there was not much in the way of paid church leadership. It was really an underground movement on the edges of society. It wasn't advantageous um, socially or politically or economically to be part of the church. There were periods where the church was um, persecuted, um, yet it grew. It grew. It was kind of this underground movement on the edges of the culture and society, and it grew mm-hmm. across the Roman Empire and around the edges of the Mediterranean Sea to the point where some um, historians think that nearly 50% of the population of the Roman Empire might have been uh, Christians by the time um, the year 300 rolls around. Mm, Wow. Again, as this little underground movement on the edges, mostly meeting in homes. And so what they did well is they did all four of those things. They glorified God. um, They loved each other because – it was, you know, it was quite hard to be a Christian, so actually getting support from each other was really important. Clearly, they found a way to make disciples who make disciples when we're on mission because the church grew so much over that time. Um, and then, uh, then 
the 1700-year wedgie began. That's not my <laughs> phrase. Um, there's a, a bit of a missional community guru called Hugh Halter who calls it the 1700-year wedgie. And so what he means by that is that Constantine was the empire at the, somewhere in the 300s, and um, he had some kind of Christian conversion experience and and soon made Christianity the state religion. So up until this time, um, Christianity had almost been the enemy of the state, and, and now he's saying, actually, not, not only is it okay and lawful to be a Christian, we're actually making uh, Christianity and the church our, our um, formal religion of the Roman Empire. And so everything changed, um, not overnight, but over a number of years. But of course, all of a sudden, the church is attached to power and um, it becomes politically and socially and economically a good idea to be part of the church. And then without, I'm not sure whether they whether they thought about this intense, in, intently or not, but started to borrow ideas from local religious setups, um, so Greek and, uh, Greek and Roman gods would have a temple and priests or and or borrow ideas from the Old Testament, which, you know, had the temple and priests. And so suddenly you've got money and resources and you're building buildings for people to meet in. Um, and what emerged was a, was a, a thing called Christendom, which was large large parts of Europe that were essentially considered Christian. And so if France was a Christian country and part of the Holy Roman Empire and you lived in France, no matter what you thought about or believed in your heart, you were generally considered a Christian because you were in this Christian country. And and the kind of churches that emerged were, um, were building-centred, priest-led, altar or stage focused and encourage passive attendance, which is a very different thing than we had in those first 300 years where, mm. where it's mainly, mostly men in homes. The Christian community was a massive part of what they, what they did. I mean, the table was probably one of the main symbols of Christianity uh, in those first 300 years. So you can see a, a massive change takes place. Um, if you go to any city in Europe and, and most cities in New Zealand, what's at the very center of the city? Right, a large church building. Mm. So yeah. that kind of is a really good symbol of where Christianity and the church had its sway in the culture, married with a lot of power. And so there wasn't really the obvious cultural need for Christian community because everyone's a Christian. There wasn't that drive to relationally go and make disciples the way Jesus did because everyone was considered a Christian. And and they kind of the, the whole idea of even mission almost got lost for hundreds of years because everybody is a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm exaggerating the point a little bit, and there's lots of wonderful other examples of things that emerged during this time um, that were missional and good at making disciples, but generally the, the the church institute wasn't. Where am I going with all of that? Uh, the church model that emerged in the Christendom age is the church model that we primarily practice today. <laughs> building-centred, priest-led, stage-focused, passive attendance. It emerged at a time where that made sense and where most people in the culture had an understanding, even if they weren't Christian, they had an understanding of the Christian worldview. They believed probably that there was a God. They believed probably that something sin was a big deal in some kind of way. They believed that Jesus was a real person. All of that kind of stuff made, made sense. However, we don't live in a Christendom world anymore. That age has passed, and most people in our culture have more of a postmodern mindset, which uh, has a high suspicion of institution, a high suspicion of truth, um, a high suspicion of um, uh, people trying to sell things, people Mm. in positions of power, which is exactly what the Christendom church was fundamentally fundamentally about. So um, a major problem is is a model of a church that emerged in Christendom we're not in Christendom anymore, and the way we do church 
just doesn't make sense to a lot of people in our culture. It's even making less and less sense to people who grew up in church. That there's something about the way we do things that doesn't doesn't really make sense. So that's one major issue. And the second um, major issue is that this this Christendom church primarily is only good uh, at one of the four things a church is meant to be doing. Most churches I go to, most churches I know are really great at glorifying God. You go to their service, they're saying, Jesus is great, he's our saviour, he's our king, we worship you, we praise you, we're going to follow you. Just about every church I know is really good at that. But when you look at the other three things, Christian community, making disciples and, and being on mission, sharing the good news of Jesus in, in deed and in word, um, essentially if you were marking a church out of 10 in each of those categories, they tend, tend to get lower and lower <laughs> uh, the further down that list you go. So there's two two major problems. One, a, a church, a, a style of doing church that doesn't make sense to the culture and that's really, really important. But more importantly than that, a way of doing church that primarily is not good at three of the four things we're meant to be doing. It's not good at Christian community. It's not good at making disciples. And it's not good at mission. Mm. No, thanks, Paul. Well said. And a good summary of uh, yeah, all those decades of, of church too. But we live in an inf- information-rich culture. And there's a lot of advice, I'm sure, about you know small churches that are struggling. But do you think, uh, maybe I'll throw this out to Howard and Paul, do you think that um, what Paul's been talking about really addresses those core issues that churches are struggling with? Yeah, you know, we, I think when you look at what advice is being offered to a small church of 30 that's mm. kind of going, what should we be doing? Yeah. Um, the common advice I hear is, you know, play to your strengths. Don't try and be a big church. Mm. You know, um, be more sort of ordinary, folksy, you know, having one guy with a guitar up front singing is fine. You don't have to have a band. Uh, and really what, they, what they're saying is uh, people want to belong. They want that relational connection. And, hey, a small church is a place where everyone can know your name mm. and, uh, and, you know, work on that. But if you really dig into what they're saying is they're saying – be that kind of church that you can keep doing what you've always done. Uh, they're imagining that they're just going to upscale it. They're going to get more people attracted to this friendly, family-sized church, and then we're going to just keep doing what we've always done. Mm. Um, we're going to come in, we're going to sit in pews, we're going to stand to sing, we're going to listen to a message, and then we're going to go out and have a cup of, cup of tea afterwards. I think churches really think that they – are actually great at community, that they actually do a great job of of being family and connecting to people. But a real test of what you really value is what you spend time on. Mm. So if a church service is one hour long and it dare not be one minute longer than that, and you see how you spend that time, how much of the time is spent connecting, talking, Digging into somebody else's life, you know, finding out how you can pray for them, how you can care for for them, and also how they can minister to me. You know, what do they have that I need to receive in order to, you know, grow in my faith, to grow as a Christian, to to feel support and encouragement through my week? Mm. Um, So most churches are actually spending precious little time on the conversational connection bit. And so it's really what Paul is saying. We promise a lot in terms of um, Christian connection and community, but actually we offer crumbs (laughs) in reality. 
and that cup of tea and biscuit afterwards, it's just not enough. And so um, I would like to, I'd like to ask the question, really, you know, when we get together, what's central to our gathering? What's the most important thing when we get together? We need to talk about that. Mm. For, for a lot of churches, um, I'm not sure they would know how to answer that question. I would say worship is the most important thing or the Bible teaching is the most important thing. And, of course, both of those are, are really, really important. But there is, there is power in Christian community like if we love each other well in Christian community, that is worship. And uh, if we love each other well, then obviously that, that does the Christian community thing. Well. But but Christian community is also a really powerful tool in disciple making. So whenever you hang out in a Christian community where people are really loving each other well uh, and Jesus is on the agenda of what it looks like to uh, follow him and live for him, then that's a massively powerful um, disciple making and, and missional tool as well. And so one of one of the great things about Christian community, in terms of the four things that a church is meant to be doing, you know, uh, one of which is Christian community, but it actually um, is super effective at doing glorifying God and making disciples and being used and is one part of the mission as well. You know, you get non Christians hanging out in Christian community, they're going to be getting discipled in that space, whether anyone's using the word discipleship or not. Mm. Well, sort of what I hear you both saying is, in a way, church could be like what we're doing outside of church, connecting with people, meeting together, having conversation, and somehow we bring that into church and we change it all and we do something different that's not like real life and, yeah, maybe we could do things better. So, Paul, I know you've, your church has been through a lot of modelling, remodelling over the years. So what, are the, what would you break down as being the most critical points of, of what you've done in that time to take from where you, where you were before mm. to where you are now? Uh, there'd be two, two parts to that que- answering that question. One is we spend a lot of time at leadership level looking at the why. Why do we need mm. to change? And so that included things because, because the leadership needed to be convinced that we're not just going to shrivel up and die slowly. We actually needed to decide we needed to do something. So one was being honest by, about the fact we weren't in a good place and, and therefore change needed to happen. Um, one was kind of making up some ground rules about how we were going to have the conversation. So this is something I borrowed from Bishop Justin Duckworth, who's the um, the Bishop of Wellington. And he said, um, here are the ground, ground rules for the conversation when you're talking about what we're going to do as a church. What God wants is more important than my personal preferences. Mm. What the group decides is more important than my personal preferences. And mission and the people we're sent to is more important than my personal preferences. And what that did is it created a discussion at leadership level um, that made us, I guess, be honest about what we are willing or possibly unwilling to lay down for the sake of mission. You know, am I going to hold on to certain traditions, which means the church isn't going to grow, but they're more important than the church. You know, so having those kind of honest conversations. And the second thing is that, um, you know, anyone who's been around a church long enough will know that there's power dynamics at play and mm-hmm. there are gatekeepers and, uh, and all the rest of it. Is it took the conversation, if everybody in leadership committed to uh, this whole idea of what God wants is more important than what I want, then it takes the conversation out of the domain of my preferences of how we should do church versus your preferences of how we should do church, which often can come down to a political battle uh, just in the reality of church leadership. And But if everyone's got a, a humble and submissive heart saying, you know, whose church is this? 
It's God's church, and if together we're going to seek his will and be open-handed about where he's leading us, then we can avoid some unnecessary um, conversations that might end end up getting stuck because it becomes a preference battle as opposed to a following Jesus battle. Mm. Um, So we we did that that kind of groundwork. Um, The two discipleship questions, what's God saying to us? What are we going to do about it? We really committed to that as kind of the overarching um, purpose of our of our journey is in the leadership discussion, um, and then you know, how did Jesus make disciples? Well, he didn't make disciples by listening to a sermon and singing some songs, right? and those those are good things. Don't yeah. hear what I'm not saying. Yeah. But actually, Jesus made disciples by investing in a small group of people and doing community well and going on mission with them. And so maybe maybe you know Jesus as the master of disciple making. Maybe we should tune into some of his methodology as churches. We tune in to his the content of his teaching, but sometimes we miss how Jesus made disciples in our own attempts as a church to make disciples. Um, and, of course, we we looked at the whole 1,700-year wedgie thing, <laughs> and that, which was really helpful, and I probably should have mentioned this before, but the reason that was helpful was that it took away the blame from the existing church leaders and the guilt they were feeling about why is my church shrinking and dying? There are, like, you know, Thousand, a couple of thousand years of historical and cultural reasons, things that are that are at play. That that a little old church in small town New Zealand probably a has no idea about, and b has no idea of the kind of impact that they're having across the culture. You know, lots of um, mainline traditional churches are shrinking and dying. So it's not just. It takes away that feeling that the existing church leaders we've failed miserably because the church is shrinking and dying, and it's entirely our fault. Well, I'm saying, no, it's not entirely your fault. Actually, there's a bunch of things at play that you have no control over, and and those are some of the main contributing reasons to why the church is shrinking. And so you can um, alleviate some of the blame. However, the problem is still in our hands, and as church leaders, it's us, up to us to decide what we're going to do about it. And so... That's the answer to the first part of the question. We we did we looked a lot at the why. Why do we need to change? You know, are we are we good at um, Christian community? Are we doing? Are we good at making disciples? Are we good at mission? The answer was no. Being honest about all of that, and so if not, and this is God's church, church, what are you what are you gonna uh, God? What are you gonna, what do you want us to do? And be open handed, really genuinely open handed, which is very courageous uh, and very hard to do. Um, and then the second half of that question is that as we were had gone through all the hard work of the why, we hadn't really any idea what what we were going to do or what God was calling us into, but we were praying into it. And at the time, um, one of our uh, leadership team members, her name's Susie, somehow the, the Redemptive Family book ended up in her hands. And this is exactly the time of the process as a leadership team. We're going, well, what are we going to do? And she read it and she throws it on my, uh, my office table. She you should read that. I think this might be us. Hmm. Um, and so I did, and it was. Um, and uh, and so what What our church, what our little older church was really good at um, was hospitality and making people feel welcome. Right. What we could have done is we could have said, uh, let's try and be like all the other churches and 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 you know do rows and a sermon and just do that as as well as we possibly could. We simply just didn't have the people resources to do that. We weren't doing all the normal things other churches do well. We we just couldn't because we didn't have the cattle for it. Mm. But what do we do well? Well, we're good at hospitality and we're good at making people feel welcome. And then I read uh, read 
uh, the redemptive family journey, and we look through the material together as a leadership team. And there's this big emphasis on Christian community as a tool for disciple making and mission, and inviting people into Christian community. And I thought that's who we are. Yeah, you know, like the change is always a little distressing for people. But if you can, this is something I learned off Tof, Todd Bolsinger in his um, book Canoeing the Mountains. If you can create changes in your church that align with existing values in the church, then it's more likely that those changes will get some traction. And so what was some of the some of the ideas coming up in the Redemptive Family book aligned with who we were around welcoming and hospitality? Uh, more importantly, uh, it aligned with what we saw happening in the New Testament church, mm. right? People meeting around the table, people being, uh, being I guess, loved into the community. Uh, and so uh, one of the things we decided to do uh, through the redemptive family journey was to meet around tables. But that, that came about through a, a long preaching series on the why, and then we used the redemptive family journey resource, which I'm sure Howard will talk about at some point, which is which is a five-week, correct me when I go wrong, yeah. a five-week journey that the whole church goes on. Mm. And so there's sermons you preach through, all looking at the theological ideas behind the redemptive family material. There are daily devotions that people can take. There are midweek Bible studies that you can do. There are weekly surveys um, so that people can um, give feedback to the leadership about what they're thinking. And and, and the material is basically theological. And, and it doesn't come in saying, you should you, know, you should do tables right now. <laughs> like, it doesn't do that. It's just like, you know, what is the church about? Yeah. You know, and, and it's this big idea that the, the church is a family on mission together, a, a, a family in a place on mission together are the big theological ideas that come through. And so we preached and did the redemptive family journey on that, and then we invited Howard and the team to come to, and this is, which is part of what they do, come to our church and do a church-wide conversation. It's exactly that. Mm-hmm. It's a Friday night, Saturday morning thing where everybody gets a chance to share some thoughts about uh, what church is about and what what their heart and passion is for, and then these guys have these great ways of kind of taking all the information and um, summing it up and presenting it back to people. But the idea was that, and the big idea behind the redemptive family journey is the emphasis on all on the journey is like it takes people with you. And at no point did I say, as as the the vicar, this is exactly what we're doing. Mm. And so, uh, and part of me wants to do that, right? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but it's actually saying we're going on this journey together. Here's the here are all the theological reasons why um, we should be thinking about doing things a little differently. And then there's a dis, you know this this church wide conversation that we had led by Howard and his team. And then we did another one a few months after that, led by me to even get more specific. And and we decided together as a church to to do a number to a couple of things. One was to actually meet around tables. So that it would emphasise Christian community because we did that good. Mm. We were good at that. Um, and then also the other thing we decided to do was a Termly Practical Needs Sunday where we got out of the church building and just found people in the community needed their gardens done up or some wood done for them or whatever, um, and which which just you know helped us. We want to be a family on mission together, blessing the place that we're in. And we're very, very fortunate in Brightwood. It's quite a well-defined community. We're the only um, church in the, in the, in the town. Um and so, and we said to our people who'd been on this journey, we're very, very gracious. Let's we'll, we'll give this a go. We'll we'll, we'll trial it. Yeah. Um, and so, for the people who were reluctant, and there were people who were reluctant, and they were going, well, okay, I suppose we could let you do that because um, we'll review it together 
um, eight months down the road and see how we're going. And so that's what we've done, uh, and it's been really fruitful. Yeah. Oh, there's some great stuff in there. So you're doing some different things on church on Sunday, but it sounds like you're doing some practical stuff in the community outside of Sunday, and that's building into the relationship of who you are and what you do. Well, it's actually during Sunday. So when we when we do okay. do practical stuff outside of Sunday, but we take one Sunday where we're saying we're going to worship God by serving the community. Cool. Uh, and so, and then the people who can't, because it's an older congregation, some people aren't actually physically able to do that. Um, we, they meet for prayer at mm. ten o'clock on a Sunday morning, just in, also in case somebody turns up. You know, if you have a random walking off the street, uh, and then those who can, we just organise them into little working projects across mm. the community. And sometimes that's for people inside our church family loving one another, Christian community, and sometimes that's for people outside of the church family, which is just you know showing the love of God to, uh, to them um, mm. in, in deeds. Now, interesting you mentioned Todd Bolsinger. I read a quote of his just recently. Uh, he's a pastor, author, uh, life coach. And I, my understanding of people is that a lot of people, and you mentioned this in, in terms of your the change in your church, a lot of people don't like change. But yet his quote was, um, people don't resist change, they resist loss. What do you think? Of that? Is that true? And how do we navigate the problem? Yeah, I think uh, what's topmost in people's minds when you say we're going to change mm. is what are we going to lose? Because I might love that stuff. Um, and so everyone, there is always good stuff in your church, right? And there is stuff that people love. And and I think the important thing, and, and um, Paul, that is your name, right, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things Paul touched on earlier is um, you've got to carry people along with you, yeah. of, of course, and they've got to, well, A, realize that if I give this up, it's only because we're reaching for something more. We're reaching for something more important, something that we want more than this. Mm. But I think we do in that change process, we do have to acknowledge that there may be a sense of loss. Um, we know a church who, you know, they 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 have a little old chapel that's kind of a hundred and something years old. It's got stained glass windows and stuff, and it's got these incredibly upright back wooden pews. Oh, lovely, comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very so beautiful inside. <laughs> yeah, and of course, some of the people that have been coming there all their lives, um, they love that space. But the space is not congenial for what the church wants to be and what the church wants to do as as they're grappling with the stuff. So how do you convince, you know, some of those older people who love the stained glass windows and they just love the the sense of being with God when they in that space? How, how do you help them move? And so it's really important that you have a vision. There needs to be a compelling vision of why we can't be here and why we have to move and, and go there. And I would say maybe you can find some compromise ways of incorporating some of those changes into what you're going to be doing next. Mm. Maybe you don't have to give up on that little chapel altogether. You know, perhaps you can go in there for the sac, you know, for communion or, or, or you can go in there for the benediction at the end or you can, you know, sing your final song in there or something. Yeah, You may be able to work out a plan for taking your people along on the journey. But um, I think the consolation needs, needs to be a consolation. And that consolation is there's a vision and a hope for the future that makes the pain of giving up something worth it. Mm. 
I think that's really the trick. What do you think? Oh, change is really hard. And and Mm. most people in the church probably would have been in some ways uh, happy to keep doing what we were doing until we... Couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) um, (laughs) Well said. Yeah. And so you you have to give them all the reasons why, all the Mm. good reasons why, historically, theologically, um, you know, and, and try and get people on board with... What what it could look like in the future? Do you want young families in this place? Well, if we do, then these changes might ha- happen. Do we want people to um, for the space to be a place where people can check out what Christianity is about? Well, if we do, and 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 most of most just about everybody in our congregation wants those things. Mm-hmm. So it's like on one hand, here's here's some great things to desire and want that line up with what Jesus would be calling us to do. And on the other hand, in order to get there, we're going to have to. Give up these things here, mm. and, and and if if you're just saying, and, and the changes are in the middle, right? If you're just saying, here's some changes, um, here's some changes, then people are going to go nah. But if you're saying, here's what it could look like, and that's why we're changing, mm. then uh, and if you're not, and if you're pushing those changes at a rate, again, Todd Bolsinger said, good leadership tries to bring a, about change at the rate that most people can cope with. Because if you're going too slow, you'll never get there. Culture would have moved on by the time you arrived at your vision. <laughs> um, if you push it too fast, which yeah. a lot of keen leaders are really to really um, really want to do, there'll be an implosion in terms of you know the dynamics within the church, and and there's this middle space which is a really hard space to find. As we are going to make changes, here's all the wonderful reasons, mm-hmm. all the good reasons, all the necessary mm-hmm. reasons why we need to make those changes. But we're gonna we're gonna do it at a rate that you can cope with, and we're going to consult with you, and um, and it requires the leader handing over a little bit of power mm-hmm. to the congregation by mm-hmm. saying, um, "What are we going to do?" And as part of what we did. Um, uh, we had one of our second church-wide conversation. We decided what exactly we were going to do at, on our Saint for St. Paul's, which is our 10 o'clock service, on a Sunday morning. Um, and it was, you know, okay, so maybe some pastors are a little bit control freaky, and maybe I'm one of those. Um, and so it was really, just maybe. Just <laughs> Not like, you, Paul. Can't imagine, can't imagine hypothetically. It <laughs> uh, and it's a really quite a difficult thing um, and a good thing to do to go, I'm going to hand over the results of this church consultation to the people um, because I want the people to feel like they've got a voice and I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to move amongst uh, this group of people who Mm. are seeking God together. And so that was a hard thing for me to do. Um, And then what happened in our second church-wide conversation about what we're going to do on a Sunday morning is we ended up having um, Three or four options. I can't remember the fourth option. One option was to stay fundamentally the same, um, Rose and Asuman, which was never going to attract people. Uh, the second option was to do monthly kind of missional community rhythms. So we'd have like um, two normal, uh, two table gatherings per month. And then uh, once a month we would do a practical needs Sunday. And uh, once a month we'd do a social event on a Sunday morning that wasn't particularly Christian, but we could invite people into. So that was kind of like the f- full-on version. So at one end, status quo. At this end, full-on doing missional stuff, really, really serious about it. And then we had this kind of middle uh, middle option, which was um, table church and then once a term doing practical needs on a Sunday and once a term doing a social event. And, and we had a voting system, and they could vote twice, and vote one got – 
five points and vote two got one point kind of thing. Uh, and honestly, I, I said to them, look, I'm committing to doing whatever this church decides to do together. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, and then the vote happened and this middle option of of table church once, you know, once a term practical needs came up. But but. Uh, what came cl- close second was the was the monthly rhythms of missional community type stuff, uh, but actually the, the option that we came to was more than I thought we would get to mm. at the start of that process, mm. um, and they therefore the congregation felt like we've had a say that we've decided together this is what most people want, and then when we started to implement it was like um, I think it was May. Um, may like we're going to try this for the rest of the year, and then at the end of the year we will we will do a review, mm-hmm. uh, which which um, took our most reluctant people on the journey. I mean, we lost one or two people well, and they, you know they they left well, um, but it took our late adapters on the journey with us. It's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, if this is really bad, I can at least have a real good moan about it yeah. in December. <laughs> Yeah, oh, this is good stuff. I mean, you've shared some practical things that you've done. And what I love about this whole process is you're not telling people uh, or not trying to force change. And I like what you said about, let's just give this a go. You know, if it doesn't work, at least we gave it a go. If it does work, fantastic. But, well, here's the rub. And I think, Howard, you mentioned this before. So for those that are listening and maybe they're thinking, gosh, we used to have a church of 100 people attending and now we're down to 30. What do you do? What's the next step? So I'd say, first of all, just take a big breath, right? Because ultimately it's God's church, it's not yours. And so you don't have to own it to to the complete extent, right? God's got it too. Mm. And then you need to appreciate that whatever the future holds, it's going to be your church being its best self. You're not going to be asked to do something you can't do something complicated, something really hard, something that you're not equipped for, something yeah. you don't have the resource for. And it turns out you don't need anything fancy, all right? The best future for you is looks incredibly human. Mm-hmm. It looks like just being people who love each other, who care for each other, who perhaps eat together, who, and then invite others into the space so they can see it. You know, the Bible says that one of the one of the hallmarks of Christian community is that people from the outside look in and go, see how they love each other, see yeah. what unity they have. And that that is the attractive thing at the heart of mission is you're never going to convince people 100% intellectually about the existence of God or, or whatever. But when they see the reality played out, there's something supernatural going on here. That's what touches touches their heart. And they kind of go, I want to be part of that. Mm. Uh, that's attractive to me. And, and I want to know more about that because this is weird and I'm not seeing it in the rest rest of my life. And so we can be that group of people whose love and whose unity is just saltiness and tastiness to the people around. And that's at the heart of this. So instead of being like, oh, no, we're shrinking, um, look around you because the people around you are the best resource you've got. Yeah, This is the team. We're the team, folks. What are we going to do? And actually – getting to know each other, turning up for each other, turning up in order to 
be part of a family that cares, that's on a, a faith growth journey together. That's the number one thing you can do. And that excitement is going to bring new hope. And because life and growth is the antidote to death and dying, right? <laughs> and so be about life and growth. Just yeah. be about life and growth. That's the advice I would give. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. So what I hear you saying is for those that are struggling, thinking their church is failing or diminishing or dwindling, it may not necessarily be big, hard stuff, massive changes they need to make. It might just be a small change in trajectory, trying some of those little things. What have we got? Let's use what we've got and other people will be attracted to that. And I guess you're talking about, if I was to summarise everything, Howard and Paul, that you've just said, I guess if we're... If, if we want to rectify a dying church, we need to focus on, as you just said, life and making disciples. I mean, they're the most important things, right? Is that what yeah. you'd say? Is that fair summary? Yes. Instead of, um, instead of turning up as passive consumers, um, we need to turn up as, as ministry participants. We need to, uh, we're there to minister to each other. Um, I need ministering too, and I also have a role to minister to, to to others. And when we start having that mindset with each other, it's not too hard to actually extend that mindset to say, actually, we can include the community on the outside in this as well. Let's invite them in because let them come and see. And so what you said there about Christian community being the heart of both mission and discipleship is absolutely true. Well, we are out of time, but thank you so much for joining us in the studio today, Paul, for traveling all the way up to uh, Nelson. I know that's a long way away to share some of your wisdom and insight and the journey that you've been on. Thank you. Appreciate that. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to be here. And uh, actually, we have a little a gift for you here. Um, it's Here you go. I'll give you that. Thank you very much. It's one of these redemptive family mugs, and I believe it has your name on it too. So uh, <laughs> Love Your Neighbor team has done a great job of, you know, when you're next playing footy with your dad bods, you can have a coffee with your uh, with your redemptive family mug and start the conversation. Well, let's, let's keep growing the dad bods, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've been excited. I'm inspired about what you guys have shared in terms of, you know, it's not necessarily that hard to take a church that's dwindling to a church that's growing and relational. And um, I've seen that happen in our own church. As I said, we're going through this redemptive family process at the moment, some of what you shared about, Paul, that you did with yours. And we're already seeing some great mind shifts and some great things happening already. And I'm excited about where our church can end up too. Uh, not that we're dying, but we want to grow and we want to uh, um, have people looking in and saying, gosh, they've got something that we want. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Well, uh, Howard, as I mentioned at the beginning, as, a, as, a, as an author, he's written a, a book called Redemptive Family and also the devotion that, that Paul mentioned. So, Howard, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book and your heart for oh, writing right, the book? Sure. Well, this is the book, and, of course, um, you can get that from us. You can also get it from any bookstore or online. Um, and then this is the... This is the little workbook for the churches that are doing the Redemptive Family Church series. Um, everyone in church ends up with a book like this, and this is the five-week thing that Paul was spe speaking about earlier. So the whole thing's built around four simple ideas. And as, as Paul mentioned, we're a family in a place on a mission together. Those are the four simple big ideas. Um, and all, I believe, very scriptural. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> and, uh, and simple is good. <laughs> so, you know, our lonely world needs a godly family to mm. offer hope, belonging, 
higher purpose and we can be that family. And if we are going to be that that family, we're going to be attracting people and we're going to see people growing as disciples too. Mm. So visit redemptivefamily.org and begin to chat with us. Um, we'd love to be having a chat with you. And of course, on that website, you'll be able to purchase any of this material as well. And Howard's book is well on its way to becoming a bestseller. So if you buy another one, it'll get there even faster. <laughs> That's right. You could help my book be a bestseller. <laughs> to all of our listeners, we look forward to having you join us next week uh, as we just continue exploring uh, what you can do to make your church um, a thriving one. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you again next week. Redemptive Family is a podcast by Love Your Neighbour. Recorded by Campfire Studios and produced by Toby Palmer. Our intro music is Jazz Brunch and outro music is Carpe Dam, both by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Special thanks to our guest Paul Milson and host Steve Hooper from Family Life. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like and leave a review. We really look forward to reading them. And lastly, for more episodes, resources and hope, head to www.redemptivefamily.org. See you there.